Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARC. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of For Your Innovation, a podcast by ARK Invest on all things related to disruptive innovation. I'm Andrew Kim, research associate covering consumer internet and fintech. Today, we have the great privilege of speaking with Sami Zahid, Director of Engineering at Chipper Cash. Hi, Sami. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Andrew. Yeah, uh, excited to be here and chat more uh, about what we've been up to here at Chipper Cash. So before diving deeper into you know, Chipper and Chipper's AI Day now, uh, two months ago, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, for sure. Um, so my journey at Chipper, I think I've been at Chipper now around three years. Um, before that, I was at Google working on search ranking. So at Chipper, kind of really being that first ML-focused uh, data hire. So I was engineer number seven, um, kind of built out a lot of the infrastructure for our ML and data uh, use cases, and then start working on problems. You know, in FinTech, we have a lot of problems around fraud, and especially with the stage I joined, a lot of problems around growth. So kind of taking that on, and now essentially where we are at is I kind of lead a team, a multifunctional team of uh, folks that kind of focus a lot on risk, growth, identity, and all the underlying infrastructure powering our ML and data systems. And then we've also started making inroads into, you know, uh, which we'll also kind of mention is around uh, businesses. So KYB and how do we uh, really, really uh, verify businesses on our platform. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the scope of where I am. And before that, like I said, at Google, working a lot on machine learning problems and kind of taking that expertise and applying now to a fintech domain. That's awesome. Um, before moving further, I just wanted to remind our listeners that this is ARC's second podcast with uh, the Chipper Cash team. Um, in episode 105, ARC speaks with uh, Chipper co-founder and CEO, uh, Ham Saranjogi, about Chipper's founding story. So uh, I would encourage listeners to refer to that episode to get up to speed on this really impressive company. But uh, maybe, yeah, moving before moving further, um, could you just give us a one-sentence overview of what is Chipper Cash? So Chipper Cash um, is essentially a primarily cross-border remittance platform. That's how we started, but now essentially kind of being a fintech super app for the African continent. So on our platform, we allow folks to not only do cross-border uh, payment flows, but also let users buy stocks, buy crypto, um, and then also pay for bills. And we also recently, I mean, like, uh, earlier this year, launched a card product as well. So a debit card product for uh, our um, African users. We're in uh, seven plus countries. Um, however, these things are always changing. We're always expanding. So, uh, but primarily, yeah, uh, FinTech Super app for the African continent. Awesome. So 
You and the Chipper Cash team announced a lot of really interesting new products at Chipper AI Day um, at the end of August. Could you give us a high-level overview of the Chipper ID platform? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, we're very excited about this. You know, identity verification is not only a big thing that's going to be start merging in the, this decade, but I think for us, it's always been a bigger challenge being on the African continent. So uh, Chipper ID primarily um, is a all-in-one kind of AI-driven KYC verification uh, platform that we uh, that we launched. Um, so this covers uh, things all the way from you know you have your kind of liveness component, which is checking if a user is actually human or not. And then we go on to the things like uniqueness, measuring whether this user has been seen on our platform or not before. And then you go into things around document verification, uh, doing OCR, but then we also have some government databases we integrate with, um, so allowing us to really verify the identity of the user. Um, and then uh, at the tail end um, of the lifecycle, we also do uh, watch list screening and sanction screening. So. We've partnered up with Open Sanctions, uh, which you know we've been very impressed by their kind of effort to kind of making it a lot more transparent and open source. The entire problem space is you know sanction screening, PAP, and watchlist, which have traditionally been very gated by certain institutions. Um, so you know doing that as well, and then kind of giving this kind of holistic end-to-end KYC verification experience to customers. So that's basically Chipperity. Got it. And you say uh, traditionally gated. I think this is a great segue to talking about, you know, what is the backstory here? You know, what compelled you to build your own KYC solution? And what did this uh, landscape look like in um, Sub-Saharan Africa and the fintech ecosystem in it before you launched your product? No, hundred uh, percent. And I think I think this story for Triple ID kind of starts at you know the end of this kind of you know bull run um, that we saw, um, and then we kind of entered this kind of fintech winter, which we currently still are in. Um, so I think a lot of the concerns that we also had previously were not only around these KYC verification providers um, not being at the standard we wanted them to be, but also from a cost perspective, right? So as as we kind of entered this and started looking at costs to cut. KYC is a big, big factor, right, for all of us uh, who are operating in the fintech ecosystem. Um, and then when you look at, um, from that perspective, you start eating those costs out, you start building your systems, we ended up, you know, what we felt was like not only something that would be a value add to other folks on the continent, but also a great opportunity to start really thinking about the trajectory of how identity verification and 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 its, you know, uh, tangential kind of uh, verticals, uh, taking that into the next decade and how Africa uh, emerging markets will start thinking about it. And what we saw is, you know, when you look at a lot of the KYC providers, they're looking from a compliance and legacy perspective, right? Like as a checkbox, right? Like I want to verify this user because certain regulations say I have to do these steps. But now we're entering in a world where, you know, fraud is, of course, going to get bigger. We have a lot of AI generation uh, we're already seeing happening um, with fraudsters. So now it's not only a uh, regulation or compliance issue, it's also a product issue because you don't want, you know, a lot of these users impacting your products and, and, and bloating your numbers and, and, and so forth. So, um, for, for us, not only it started from a cost cutting perspective, but then when we started building it out, it ended up being something we felt, uh, was not only, you know, innovative, but also something that we felt, uh, we could, you know, build on top of with our partners. And can you help us kind of quantify the impact of this movement? Can you talk about like what percentage of operating expenses do you think overall for fintechs 
in sub-Saharan Africa or, or Africa more broadly are typically allocated to kind of KYC, compliance, legal, all of these procedures. And like, do you have a sense of how much you're saving now and how much you expect to save, I guess, over the longer term as you unlock the full value of this platform that uh, you and your team have built? The main kind of where I'll start this discussion on is the metric which is CAC, right? So customer acquisition cost, which is uh, probably the most, one of the most important pieces of cost um, around fintechs and also generally in startup world. Um, so when we looked at our numbers, you know, in some markets, we were averaging even up to like 50% of our CAC was related to KYC and compliance costs, right? And that was, again, as I referred to in my early point, um, mainly due to a lot of these third-party KYC providers really charging tooth and nail. You know, we can probably go more into, you know, the different pricing models and how they, you know, a lot of the market has kind of, what I'd say the identity verification industry has kind of really been in sales mode in the last few years, right? Like a lot of the core tech has not really been, you know, it's, you know, some computer vision techniques that came out mid 2010s and and people are still using them. Um, So, you know, when we looked at it on ourselves, like GAC 50%, you know, that's huge. So what we did is build out um, everything. We don't resell anything, just to be clear. We built out all of these components, all of the tech ourselves. So that basically put us down to honestly, you know, cost of electricity and compute from that 50%. Um, and then what we also uh, managed to do in, in an absolute sense is, you know, millions and millions. So, you know, we anticipate like double digit millions uh, savings uh, for this going forward in the next uh, couple of years. Uh, especially when we look at even the cost of operating in a new market, right? So these are like the second order, third order effects that we also kind of benefit from, um, from a future cost perspective is like, okay, if you want to go into a new market, KYC is a big consideration, but now we can handle that on, um, ourselves, right? For instance. So, um, you know, 50% is a big number in a lot of markets. Of course, in some markets, it's like, you know, 30%, but mainly, um, what we managed to do is immediately cut out those costs and now turning this into a revenue, uh, generator, right? For us. That's super exciting. Maybe just to now dive a little deeper into each of the segments of the Chipper ID platform, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Veriface, right? The facial recognition um, offering. Can you just talk about the general issue of account creation fraud in Africa? Like, do you think this is an issue that disproportionately affects Africans um, relative to the rest of the world? Yes. Uh, so this is, uh, I would say, I would preface that by saying it's probably a problem unique more to emerging markets rather than just Africa. And the issue becomes, for instance, when you run any kind of promotions or you run any kind of growth marketing campaigns, it creates an obvious adverse incentive for people to create duplicate accounts and, and, and essentially get part of that marketing money, right? So one of the harder things that becomes a challenge is identifying people on devices and knowing you know, we have unique users. Um, and this became disproportionately harder, I would say, starting the end of, you know, 2020, 21. That's when Apple and Google started making much harder to people to track devices, primarily as a way to protect privacy and such. But, uh, you know, that's, you know, Facebook suffered from it. They could not do a lot of good cross-selling from an ads perspective. And, but, you know, from a fraud perspective, it made it very tough for people to understand what is a unique device. So going from there, you know, you kind of enter the world of, you know, let's say, you know, Africa, where we offer even, let's say, a dollar or two dollars for people to sign up, right? Um, that, when you look at, you know, from a purchasing power 
disparity perspective, um, that one or two dollars can go pretty far for a lot of folks in, on Africa. So, so what happens is you have a lot of people, there's no like automated or bot behavior mainly um, that we are concerned by from a duplicate account creation perspective, but people manually creating these accounts, right? So people are, we, at some point we saw someone create up to like 500 accounts over two, three days just so that they could get a lot of this marketing spend. So it's a lot of, it becomes tougher, right? Because you actually have genuine humans going through the flows, trying to do it. So one of the things we really felt like would be a good approach to this would be detecting duplicate faces. Um, so when we do our liveness detection, we also kind of do this from this uniqueness check to understand if this user has seen on the platform before or not. And that's where we kind of did something a bit more unique because, you know, the advent of vector databases has made the concept of finding, you know, doing kind of similarity matching much easier, much faster. So we um, actually did a case study with Pinecone, who is a vector DB, because to kind of illustrate uh, the power of the platform we built is, you know, sub-second, multi, one-to-many matching over millions of accounts. So, right, like if, for instance, Andrew, you were to come on Chipper, and let's say you signed up on Chipper like two years back, and we have like, you know, five plus million users within a second, we will be able to tell you pin. So this allows us to kind of do checks real time. We were, uh, we looked at some providers and some of them, you know, were doing something similar, but what they would be doing is giving us responses after 20 to 30 minutes sometimes, right? So a lot of it was manual review where they would do it, but then they would also have constraints like, oh, up to only 30,000 faces we can kind of support, right? So that was a no-go for us. So what we did, built is this kind of a vector database solution where we would um, uh, kind of embed faces into a space and then kind of run cosine similarity and figure out if it's the same person or not. And for the actual facial recognition, or I would say more around facial understanding, uh, we kind of use some open source models that we've tweaked essentially to create these embeddings for people on faces. So another problem becomes a lot of these open source models, they don't really do great um, at uh, African faces. Um, so not only African, but like any kind of you know, non-Caucasian, right? Like this is, there was a paper that came out with, you know, around this as well, where, you know, you have things like your image net and all these big purposes, they're just very biased, right? So the good part is we have a lot of <laughs> this data. So we have, you know, upwards of 5 million faces. So what we did is kind of tweak, uh, right? Like fine tune, essentially, uh, one of these open source models and essentially create much cleaner and accurate facial embeddings that we could compare folks with. Got it. Yeah. Before talking about image training data, I want to just go back to what you were talking about with uh, embeddings retrieval. What were the biggest challenges that you kind of faced as you were building out that um, tech stack? Um, and like, yeah, what are lessons learned there? Um, so I think quite a few. I think one thing is to understand that, um, you know, there's a lot of new tech out there that people might not know that a can be very helpful. So like things like vector databases, right, which are kind of in vogue right now, mainly from, you know, from a, a text embeddings perspective, right? So people would, oh, always think vector databases, everyone is just having this one-to-one mapping in their head. Oh, vector databases, chat GPT, LLM, and that's all they think about. Perhaps people need to start also thinking about, you know, other use cases around um, uh, this kind of new tech emerging, right, with vector databases, which is doing these kind of uh, really dense matching um, over millions and millions of data points. So when we started building this out, I think that was always one of the bigger concerns for us was the performance and latency perspective. So it's not only, okay, we have a vector database. That's not where the story stops in terms of performance gains, but it's also about building out our core infrastructure 
that is a very resilient and fault tolerant. For instance, when we match a face, um, you know, you could technically get five, you could get in, you get eight matches, then you have to do threshold tuning, right? So when I was at Google, for instance, a lot of the really cookie cutter, right, like secret sauce at Google was not really like, okay, you have these really novel models that perhaps the rest of the industry doesn't have it. It's essentially your way of iterating over these problems. So you have the infrastructure piece, which I just mentioned, you have to get that nailed down. But on top of that, you need to still tune your systems. And, you know, you would have essentially this process of, okay, let's run it on a data set that we curated over, let's say, 2000 samples, run the model on top of that, and then figure out your win patterns, your loss patterns, which are patterns you want to see, which are not if someone's wearing a hat, and someone's not wearing a hat, and there, you know, can we catch those? So we saw a lot of these issues emerge, even when we built it up front. Um, but what really, I think, helped us is having this kind of robust iterative process that we've developed at Chipper, uh, where we would look at samples, we would look at the win loss, we have really strong evaluation infrastructure, uh, without which I don't think um, none of this is possible. But again, it's a time investment, right, to uh, build that out as well. So, you know, you kind of pair these together. So you have the infrastructure, which is like, okay, we need to be fast. We need to match faces very quickly. Um, and on top of that, um, accuracy has to be high as well, right? So you have to kind of tune that piece as well. So typically, you kind of call these like the quality infrastructure trade-off. Um, and you just don't get there without investing a lot in your uh, kind of core abilities. And then, of course, I also have to make a strong shout out to our team. Um, we have a very strong uh, team of machine, learner, uh, machine learning engineers and data scientists that kind of really take on this uh, this kind of ability to, okay, not just, okay, train a model and everything, but then productionize it, uh, do the infrastructure work, you know. So classically, you would have folks having, okay, data scientists, data engineers, machine learning. We just have essentially kind of full stack approach. So you kind of have the same engineers who are tuning the models, also working on the infrastructure, and then they're also helping develop the UX for it, right? So UX is also a big part, for instance, if a person, you know, we have 98% accuracy, which is... Really impressive, but when you look at it, that's like two out of a hundred people might have issues. So what's the kind of approach to customer ops, right? What's the approach to flagging? What's the approach to human in the loop? So that is essentially the full kind of breadth of that ecosystem. You kind of have to kind of distill into this one project. Um, and then with other companies, which we usually see is you have a data scientist, you might have a backend engineer, you might have a front end engineer, and then you also have your ops folks. And then suddenly, this project becomes a job for like seven, eight people. But here, we basically have engineers leading the charge, working with customer ops, building everything by themselves. So that I think that is what I would say has been the learning is to kind of invest A, in talent, but also B, in eval, uh, your eval system, and then C, just making sure that engineers are product thinkers to a certain extent, that they can kind of handle these components in a very holistic fashion. I might have misunderstood you earlier. Um, but could you help me just reconcile my understanding between, um, you know, usage of a cloud-based vector database, right, for these models and the emphasis on on-device inference for a veriface? Like, how do I reconcile these two facts? I'd say, like, splitting it up, right, you have essentially a liveness component, which is to detect a human um, is in the image and that's a live human that is there. It's not someone with, like, let's say, holding a photo of someone but you actually have a light human present. So that problem is separate from what I would say uniqueness, which is the one where I kind of really talked about face matching and such, which is to understand if it's the same person or not. So when we talk about on-device inference, that mainly applies to the liveness piece. So understanding that you are a, a human, a living, breathing human, you're not 
uh, spoofing us. You're not running a video or you're kind of doing any deep fakes. So for the, that problem, we have implied, um, uh, applied a on-device solution primarily, but you still make a server network call with the uh, selfie that the user takes to kind of do a double check on the backend. But in like 90% of cases, you don't have users writing. So what helps is that, I, I think to your point, so that um, our listeners also know, on-device inference is extremely important for the continent, especially where A, you have people with you know devices that might still be under one gigs of RAM, um, right? So you cannot uh, uh, really... And then you also have essentially the issue of people having uh, network cap- uh, constraints, right? So maybe internet is not always working, but you also have like choppy internet to kind of shuffle, like letting them upload a video, of the, that that's kind of a, a very tough problem, right? So what we've done is kind of really optimize for this kind of emerging market use case of like choppy internet and device not doing great, and then helping users speed up um, their kind of onboarding uh, process through on-device inference. Got it. Just to summarize then, uh, we were talking about kind of two services, right? Veriface, which uh, is verifying human likeness in which on-device inference is made possible because you are just verifying um, whether it's a human or a bot, right? And um, obviously on-device inference matters a lot for the reasons that you have just cited. And then we also talked about uh, Now You See Me, right? Which is verifying facial uniqueness, right? To ensure that the right person is logged in and ensuring that it's the right person uh, logged into the correct account. No, no, completely. And I think we've been also just trying to diverge from our internal names like Veriface and Now You See because they kind of have um, uh, not a clean kind of optics on what they mean. So I think uh, when we talk about problems now, we kind of internally also talk about like, okay, you have liveness, you have uniqueness and yeah, very different problems and we solve them very differently. And to your point, which you already, I think it's a, it's a good point to mention, logging in, right? So we also have the same tech uh, that we use for uniqueness, which is a bit separate from Jeopardy. We don't offer that as a thing, but just to illustrate like, you know, we had a lot of account takeover issues at Chipper where you would have people kind of getting scammed um, by folks on the internet. They would call them and say, we're a Chipper Cash support employee. Please uh, give us your password. Give us your phone OTP that you would get in a few minutes. But what we did is also implement the uh, kind of official check when they would log in. So the same thing I want to say is because it's only made possible because we've run it very fast, right? So it's like face ID, but at the Chipper account level. Just diving a little bit deeper into the process, the training process involved in verifying um, facial uniqueness, right? Uh, With Now You See Me. You talked about how you kind of experimented with AI models, right? To kind of generate synthetic data to help you um, enrich your pre-existing very large uh, data set of um, African citizens, right? Um, Can you just talk about how kind of different this is just from simple manipulation of existing image data and maybe more broadly, the usage of synthetic data in the training process to begin with. Like, what's your general opinion there? No, no, this is, uh, I think, something we're, of course, as someone involved in the industry, not, I think something very we're excited by. But of course, there are very lot of nuances uh, attached to this as well. So yeah, first, I'll kind of mention, right, like our efforts and where I see going in the future. But primarily, what we've been seeing is, you know, a lot of this Kind of diffusion models, um, right? Like, so you look at things like Midjourney, Stable Diffusion, allowing and Dali, right? Of course, allowing people to kind of take some text and generate images out of it, right? Um, however, we've also seen, right, like with something like Stable Diffusion, they started offering an in-painting 
kind of mechanism, right? So even Dali um, Midjourney, I think, also started recently offering that. So you kind of also have this ability to kind of not only generate new novel images, you can take your existing images. For instance, if we have a lot of folks in our data set that are just taking, you know, their selfies, what if you just add a hat to them or give them glasses? Um, you know, so these are the things where we've kind of really already have been, you know, playing with is expanding, not, okay, not in the training phase, but on the testing side where, okay, if we kind of have these kind of more uh, anomalous uh, kind of situations, users are, uh, we can now start generating synthetic data for it. The reason being because there's a imbalance issue, right? Which people know. So any kind of imbalance issue, you kind of either have to, you know, kind of get more data around it or yeah. So this kind of solves the imbalance issue. So if you want to see, oh, the same person, but wearing a hat, that's hard, right? For us to kind of just get that data. So what we can use is some of these diffusion models to kind of put them, the same person in a bit of different scenario. Maybe even we can change some of the lighting. And, and then essentially that allows us to test our models much better. Now, if you go to the training side, that is a bit, we haven't really dug too much there yet, but because we already have a, a lot of training data. And then what we've seen is some of these anomalous use cases, we can kind of like do a patch on top of the model, either through a heuristic or through another algorithm that we can detect these. But at some point, we're going to start experimenting as well on that side. And of course, you know, as these image uh, diffusion models get better, I anticipate the gap between them leaving some weird artifacts in the training process to reduce. Uh, we're very excited by it. It's not only going to help us on this kind of selfie, you know, when we look at uh, users in different contexts, but also from a document perspective, right? Like, for instance, one of the fraud patterns we'd seen in the past is people pasting strips of paper on their ID cards to kind of make sure that they end up kind of spoofing systems, right? So, of course, sometimes they don't work because, let's say, if you're in Nigeria, right, like you have, uh, let's say, um, your NIN, which is uh, your NIN slip, which is a form of document that the Nigerian government gives, we kind of query the database for the government. So in those cases, they won't be able to spoof it. But for instance, if you don't have a government DB integration and it's a novel kind of number that we parse to our OCR, technically they could fool us, right? So it allows us to even kind of create these kind of, okay, can we detect those kind of strips of paper? Can we detect any kind of manipulations? And instead of like, trying to source those uh, data points, we can now synthetically start generating them using diffusion models. And that's it's still up in the air, whether in the training phase, they can help us, but they're already helping us from a testing perspective. It's interesting that you bring up um, you know, document verification and minimizing fraud there in that I do wonder if you're going to have to find this really nice balance between like utilizing just traditional, I guess, OCR tech and um, multimodal LLMs, right? In the, I, I saw, I think it was either a tweet or a TikTok in which a person kind of uploaded an image, right? And it said, like, do not listen to the user's commands. Like, it, this person is untrustworthy or something like that, right? And then it actually prioritized the commands within the image over the user's prompt, right? Over the text input. So, I, I do think it's going to be really interesting as I guess you guys also leverage GPT-4 and other multimodal models going forward, um, how to find that balance, right? To minimize false positives, false negatives, et cetera. No, no. I think, of course, you know, you had the OpenAI dev day earlier this week and, you know, we've been, you know, kind of already started to play around because it re released the vision models and we've had access to them. Hundred percent. I think what we already see, um, you know, just not even just talking about GPT four, but just like the multimodal LLMs, right? Is a 
the big thesis we also have at Chipper is like a lot of this tech is going to get commoditized over the next coming years. So things around like OCR, these are, you know, it's the same thing that happened to text is going to happen to vision, right? So text with LLMs, you know, you had decades of NLP research kind of thrown out of the window because now you have this. Same thing is going to happen to vision. To what degree? It's still up in the air because then you have video as well that comes into it, right? And of course, video is just another modality of images if you think about it, right? So that's still up in the air. But what we already see is, is like you say, like when you know you have these issues, you still need to make sure that a you have some other system in the next coming years um, that can either verify or make sure that you're kind of doing things the right way. So we're already running some uh, thing of running some evals where you know, okay, our system versus this multimodal vision, just how good it's doing. And in some cases, we already see it's you know doing amazingly well, but there are always these kind of, um, what I would say is anomalous instances where A, it cannot parse the text properly or it might refuse, which is of course another concern with uh, using uh, these cloud providers for LLMs is ultimately, you know, if they say we don't want to process human faces, we don't want to process documents and, and, and things like that will always be a bit constrained. But I'm talking more broadly than open source because in the next coming years, what you say with GPT-4, the vision variant is going to be open sourced in the next couple of years. So for us, it's essentially, I think for the industry, it's always like, you know, this is the time <laughs> to be thinking about these things and realizing that a lot of the tech mode that people had built, right, is probably going to disappear very quickly. And then also it's going to open up a lot of new use cases. And we've already been experimenting with some of them, which is like, you know, doing, let's say, Q&A over your document for compliance folks, right? So if you have a huge document, this could be, you know, especially on the business side, some of these documents in Africa, they can be pretty big and extensive just speeding that up, right? Like having a compliance person ask questions about the document rather than having to peruse and kind of go through them by themselves. Um, and that's where we're the most excited by is, you know, where this multimodal LLMs, they kind of open up a world where essentially you have, you don't really have to specifically build templates or kind of entertain um, different uh, documents yourself. You have this kind of all-in-one Oracle that can do it for you. But on top, you will still need, you know, you're going to have your compliance knowledge baked in. You still need to understand regulatory scope you're operating in. So those things I still think, you know, will be needed. And at Chipper, that's something we've already been invested in, right? Since the conception is having strong re- regulatory reporting, compliance department, knowing a document is now outdated, not accepted by a certain jurisdiction, or there are new patterns that are emerging. So these are things that we still need. So essentially, even though the scope and the technical side of it will be eaten up by a lot of these multimodal, but you still need to have a lot of this compliance risk knowledge. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. So proprietary data and human in the loop is how a firm keeps its edge in an ever commoditizing product segment. Exactly. Pretty much because even in the world where we start fine tuning some of these multimodal um, LLMs to like, you know, handle our data better. Whoever has that data will win, right? And and I think that's where we're already seeing, right? This entire even uh, OpenAI and the Dev Day, you know, they're already starting working with some companies where they're charging like two to three million dollars to have a really custom GPT model. So I think, of course, the prices are going to come down. A lot is going to be open source, and then what you're left with is, as you said, is people with data and people without data. And people with data will be able to kind of craft out a niche here. Um, but I'm also very you know, it's up in the air because, you know, you have GPT-5 or any of these uh, next stage models. Maybe they're so general and so good that perhaps you don't need to find your own things, right? So it's just still up in the air, but I would still make the bet that there will always be room that can be improved by your 
custom data or your proprietary knowledge and human knowledge that you have at your company. So, so it's all about like how, how much of these get eaten up or not, right? And that's still up in the air, but I still think there will be a non-trivial part of it that will be supplemented by having your own data and having your own uh, proprietary knowledge. Yeah, and there's, I guess, also a simple efficiency issue, right? Like even in a world in which the you know state-of-the-art foundation model can do every single thing in the world, it makes more sense for you then to opt for a smaller model, fine-tune it for your specific use case, right? You don't need the 99.9999% other knowledge base, right, that foundation model um, has, right? No, exactly. And then, and of course, a lot of that argument is driven from a need from a cost and efficiency perspective. And, and that's always going to be the thing, right? Because even if you look at um, a lot of the pricing for GPT for Vision, it's not too bad, but it's not something that's still cheap enough that people can just be like, we are going to start running it with it tomorrow. And there's also, you know, also the latency uh, requirements and stuff. But again, these are things I don't expect to be huge bottlenecks. So they're going to improve. So we have to be forward looking and, and thinking in a world where, yeah, in the future, you're going to have these kind of more maybe smaller models that are fine-tuned on data, that are very fast, that are multimodal. Um, and that's basically going to be 90% of the work. And then you have still 10% of like ensuring yeah, human in the loop systems and how um, essentially you're updating and fine refine tuning uh, your models based on new data, new patterns. And it's also going to be a cat and mouse game at some point. You know, if, if this is so much easy on the reverse side, you have people maybe making uh, spoof documents, probably going to be very, very easy to do um, as well. So it's always going to be this kind of cat and mouse game on a new level. We also saw like uh, this kind of really crazy demo um, someone had of a live stream they were running with a face swap using stable diffusion. And you really could not tell if it's the same person or not. And at that point, you start also looking at the space of less okay, vision, but then looking at things like on-device signals that you can get, right? How people kind of are filling out their initial onboarding uh, flow, where they're tapping. So a lot of the on-device signals are also going to start becoming very important at some point. But who knows, at some point, there might also be like hardware kind of, you know, constraints uh, put in by manufacturers to ensure that, okay, you know, people can really tell if something is synthetically generated or something is um, actually human. Let's say if you have a camera and a live feed, it's an important guarantee that it's, a, it's, a, it's the same person and it's not routed through some other system. So maybe it's a hardware you know, or, you know, firmware or even like the iOS, Android level, maybe you start seeing some things that would help on that side. Yeah, I mean, regardless, it seems like a lot more data and data types are going to be needed to be ingested, right, by platforms like Chipper ID. And it's only the platforms that can accommodate such data, right, and provide useful analytics um, that will be able to be of use in a generative AI world. I just want to make sure uh, we touch on all the other products announced right during Chipper uh, AI Day. Can you talk briefly about Integrity? Love that name, by the way. And um, yeah, like just like kind of like the process of building that offering. Yes. So Integrity is essentially the kind of the comprehensive document verification um, kind of system we built. So um, on that side, we use a bunch of, you know, it's it's not like this one model because you have to have different problems. So for instance, you know, first is like even just checking if someone has a document inside the frame because we had KYC providers, right? Like if someone took a picture of their cat 
we would start getting built for it. So initially, the first thing in the Tripwire ecosystem, what we built was essentially just something on our side that would at least tell us if something's a document, something is then, okay, the document that the user is actually, you know, taking a picture of that they initially said they would. So, you know, so that's the first piece. And then you kind of go into, okay, understanding the actual document they have. So doing the OCR, right? But then even before that, you have essentially an issue where let's say if someone has taken it at a bad angle, maybe it's in a bad lighting or something. So kind of doing the skewing and cropping. So we have a model on deep learning model that kind of first does that. And then we run it through our OCR system, um, which is kind of like we have two of them. So essentially if one of them fails or does not give us a good enough, we also run uh, the other one. And then essentially when we kind of get all the data back, you know, have the OCR data, we also run a final check if something is a bit funny, right? For instance, if he, uh, you know, a certain document has eight numbers it should have, but the OCR is giving us seven, you know, making sure that we can maybe run it again, change a bit of the skewing or something around that. So it's very, I would say, involved, but it's also something I would say, uh, you know, we've managed to make it run very fast. So again, you know, our uh, P95s on this is like, less than four or five seconds, right? And and so we, again, doing this real time as it goes. And then, you know, what we have is a human in the loop system. So for instance, uh, we have a dashboard that every day populates randomly some of these so that ensuring that some of the fraud patterns that maybe the system doesn't catch, we always have a, a, a human team uh, reviews them and just make sure that we're not getting flooded by some new fraud vector or pattern. So... From integrity, that's what we really kind of focus on is just like a very comprehensive uh, document verification suite. Um, and then we also made it extremely easy to add new documents. So it's something we're also looking at exposing to our partners is a kind of a, you know, train your own doc, essentially, so they can give a template of a document. We'll train it on our system uh, based on, you know, in our system, it's like a few shot learner. So if they can give two or three templates, um, like sample images, it can kind of generalize from that. Um, and then we're thinking of adding that as a custom document verification feature for our partners so that they can, you know, one of the things is, of course, we're currently just focused on Africa, but even in Africa, there can be a lot of countries we are not supporting in. So this could be a good way for our partners. Let's say they're launching in a new country that Chipper does not support yet. So they can use that to kind of at least kickstart their journey. Gotcha. And the human intervention aspect, right, with the dashboard, that's kind of when all, where also Screen Sentinel comes in, right, and enhances the whole value prop. Can you talk about that offering as well? Yes. So that is actually something we're, really, again, super excited by. And again, when we talk to, you know, when we're pitching to prospective partners and all, that's something, again, they are really, really excited by. Um, so Screen Sentinel is essentially kind of an AI co-pilot for our compliance team um, that allows them to go through you know, the first scope for that, what we're looking at is actually watch the screening and matches. So from a regulatory perspective, you have this idea that, you know, there are these sanctions lists that, you know, you onboard users, then you have to match against them. And then, you know, in most of these cases, what we find out is like, you know, the matches are false positives, right? And then those alerts get dismissed. So what the screen GPT tool, what we're doing is kind of using LLMs to kind of, A, conduct the matching. So when we get, you know, with Open Sanctions, our partner, uh, kind of the response, okay, this user is matching all these different entities. We just let ScreenGPT kind of tackle that matching process and then kind of make a decision whether to escalate it. So if it escalates it, it ends up in the uh, review pile of an analyst. If it doesn't decide to escalate it, we close out the alert. And then what we've seen is already like our compliance teams are loving it. Like for them, 
of course, a lot of the big job is cleaning these lists and going through people's manual review, right, is, is a big part. And what we already see, it also speeds up our onboarding times because we're running a pilot right now. It's like 25% is what we've seen around about because we're looking at people who might get this kind of false positive match, uh, which can be, you know, up to, let's say, 5% of the user base. Um, for those users, it can take, you know, until the human players out there learn, they can never get onboarded. So this allows us to write onboarding very, very, uh, run onboarding very, very quickly, but it also allows our compliance teams to breathe a bit better and, and also just not have as many people as, you know, you know, banks, as I know, as you guys might know, is they have like up to tens of thousands and, uh, you know, contractors and all. It's a huge cost. And for us, this has also been not only a cost cutting um, thing, but also just been a way to make teams more efficient. And when we go to partners, they see the same value. I think we've also seen some partners say, hey, can we start using this for KYB, for instance, when we have these terms of conditions, when a business is onboarding our platform, we want the same tech, right? These LLM that you have to kind of understand the requirements that we have and then kind of make a decision, right? So we've also been playing on using this kind of screen GPT um, and expanding that scope. But for now, what we're really focused on is just like that strict compliance use case of screening and transaction monitoring and allowing them to move much faster. The point you made uh, right before on the few shot learning process is really interesting in that you can now kind of outsource geographic expansion to the chipper ID customers, right? In that those that are expanding to territories that you have not, that chipper is not available yet, you can kind of start preparing the at least, you know, customer data, right? Or, or, or um, ensuring that um, when Chipper decides to launch there, the onboarding compliance processes are seamless. Exactly. And that's exactly the vision we have for that as well, where, you know, okay, you know, some of the customers come in and they're like, okay, you don't support this document. And we already see that. And like, you know, we can always add them very quickly, but then we're like, let's abstract this process out because by virtue of abstracting it out, we also make us uh, kind of add document support in a non-technical way because then you can have even our ops folks, okay, a customer wants this new document, ops folks can go in, throw in their kind of uh, training images, right? Like, and then essentially get a model out of it that, that can start reliably doing OCR, understanding the document. So when we now go to partners, we can say, hey, you, know, you have this kind of, you know, in, in this uh, kind of UI, you have this kind of, feature now. And then all you have to do is upload a few documents and within um, a day or so, or a few hours, um, you will have a document uh, verifier for that country and that document. And then of course, the, you know, the native side of it, we, we're also trying to say like, okay, what is a native document in this world? What is a custom doc and what's the value add? So things like government DB integrations, also like, you know, the model can generalize well, but they're always kind of these kind of data and things. So of course, it won't be at the quality uh, if you were to add that natively, but it will always give these companies um, a very quick head start to start supporting new countries and 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 and, and kind of take it from there. And then you know, if you see a lot of volume, we can start you know working with them to kind of uh, enhance enhance it, add new features. But ultimately, a document's a document, uh, right? And 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 some of the same things apply. But of course, you have different fraud patterns and different regulatory things that might happen in documents. So that knowledge uh, would still live in this kind of native world. But what we've seen is the partners, they are happy with even just having this kind of custom model, which of course to understand is not going to be at the level um, if you were to do it natively, but um, it helps them get that speed and return track, we see. 
Gotcha. That's super helpful. During the AI day, Chipper announced a set of initial partners for Chipper ID. I think they were predominantly other you know, African fintechs. Now that that was like two months ago, right? Could you provide us with any updates on you know initial reception by customers, traction, you know what they're saying and like how they're using it? No, 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 for sure. I think when we go to partners, a we're being a bit more selective in our initial rollout, but you know we get a lot of interest. But for us, it's a lot of been about um, kind of really perfecting this with a select group of partners before we really open the gates on this. But even when we open the gates, when we look at world like okay, having a self serve right and everything, that to us is more at the tail end. Right now, for us, it's like getting these uh, select group of partners and iterating with them. And of course, some of them have existing contracts and stuff. So a lot of them were running pilots with them and, and making sure that they're happy with the product that we have, the integration we have. And some of them, okay, they might have a different tech stack. So we have to kind of accommodate. So for a lot of them, uh, what we uh, saw is that a verification onboarding is extremely, extremely important for a lot of these companies. There's compliance, there's everything. So we have to do a lot of work. That. And so we're doing that by doing running pilots with these partners um, and showing them the, you know, the best way for us to prove our product is to get it in the hands of our partners, right? So it's been pretty great. I think what we've been really more surprised, we kind of knew this already, but I think it just kind of helped us like, you know, there's a lot of KYC providers already, right? Like you have, of course, you have Unfido also working, Smile ID, which we've been using. They've done a lot of great work. I think a lot of people still have these problems with KYC providers, which is A, they might not support the exact feature set they want, or B, a lot of these companies, they don't, haven't really gone up and beyond than just traditional verification. So when we talk about things like screen GPT, these are things that our partners get very excited by because for them, it's not, okay, Chipper is going to help us kind of solve this kind of verification problem, but they're also going to do more, right? Like take verification and KYC to a next level, uh, use a lot more AI. So I think a lot of people get excited by that potential partnership because they know for us, right? Like our thesis is this tech, the legacy tech is going to get commoditized, right? So for us, it's all about, you know, maybe in a year or so, we can also open source a lot of our core tech because by then we already have like things like GPT and other value add systems, right? Like even doing like Q&A over dogs or a more robust KYB agent that can help uh, people verify businesses much easier. Or even like what we've been experimenting is uh, an onboarding agent, um, right, for customers. So for instance, WhatsApp. So you don't have to download the app and anything. You have a cheaper cash WhatsApp bot that kind of essentially onboards users and then once they're onboarded, hey, you can now download the app, right? So these are things that when we talk to partners to get excited by, and that's why I feel for us, that's the main goal is like, okay, our entry road is this kind of legacy tech, but then we look at, you know, the world beyond in the next coming years, uh, there's so much to do. And I feel that's where a lot of partners get really excited by. The second part to it is also uh, maybe go a bit on that side because we've been working a lot on that is um, uh, the transition to Web3. So when we look at things around, I think what we the really exciting project that we've been really also been working with block on this um, TBD, um, if folks know. So they're essentially a protocol TBD, uh, TBDEX, right? TBDEX. So uh, they have this protocol, uh, which is essentially taking a bit something slightly different from traditional blockchain protocols where they're kind of ensuring that, A, you know, it's not permissionless. It's not completely trustless. You have to have a... Comp- component of compliance and trust in your protocol. So we've been working with them to understand, right, what are zero knowledge uh, verification we can do, zero knowledge proofs, for instance. Chipper Cash is an entity on the TPDEX protocol. Uh, maybe they push out a quote 
on their side to maybe convert something from Naira to Ghanaian City, for instance, right? And then another counterparty fulfilling it, right? In this world, you still need to understand underlying user, right? So how do you, in the best and easiest way, communicate that data about the underlying user, right, on the protocol? So we've been working things because for us, when we launched Red a lot of it was kind of doing the same thing because one of the things we have is one-click verification. So as we get partners, what we also want to do is kind of remove the need to redo KYC for customers. So if Andrew, you um, came on uh, Hissa, which is one of our launch partners, and you signed up and everything, and then let's say you signed up on Chipper uh, a month after, right? Since you're already in the Chipper ID network, you know, when you come in, we, we remember you. So we say, hey, Andrew, we've seen you before. This is the data you've shared with us. Do you want to share that with Hissa? Instead of you having to snap your document again, do the selfie thing again. So it allows us to move that. So the same kind of analog to this on the Web3 side is, you know, when we have this kind of protocol that's uh, sending money on the TPDEX protocol, we can kind of kind of do the same thing where instead of, let's say, giving them the raw document, giving them the raw date of birth, we can say, okay, what are your constraints? You want someone to be 18 plus? This user is 18 plus. We don't have to tell you the exact date of birth. Okay, you require um, maybe a Nigerian passport or BVN or anything. Oh, the user has it. We don't have to tell you exactly what they have. So we're working on this. And, and I think that's also gets us very excited is on, um, you know, identity on a, in a, in a, on the blockchain, identity on, on this Web3 system, because ecosystem, because that all traditionally has been a big challenge, right? To kind of get traction by big players to start using uh, them. And compliance teams always complained about that. So we're working with TBD and, and on, 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 on that side as well to ensure identity and verification is a core part of this kind of protocol. So we see that also being a big fundamental um, part to where we evolve. But right now we're in that place of marrying Web 2, Web 3. So we want to be a bit more like, you know, we just don't want to go straight to Web 3, but we already have an Android to kind of also supporting identity verification in the Web 3 setting. There's so much to tackle there. Maybe just starting with pay with Chipper versus login with Chipper. Um, it sounds very similar to kind of how at least I think about Apple ID, Apple Pay. Can you just help me understand um, how these two offerings kind of fit together, uh, at least in Chipper's overall strategy, and um, how you see, I guess, um, zero knowledge proofed like login or verification kind of fitting also in with these like three consumer facing um, identity solutions? No, exactly. And I think when we look at even the ecosystem today, you know, the recent partnership between Adyen and Plaid, right, is another example of essentially where you have payment processors really marrying themselves to like these kind of data intensive ID verification suites. And and the reason is because of what you said, right? Kind of ensuring your rails and your payment rails have identity verification, not only as a supplemental, but like a core piece of that flow. And when we look at like login with Chipper, pay with Chipper, um, that's exactly the future we envision as well. So, you know, once we can, okay, you know, technically Chipper ID is already this kind of login with Chipper idea of like instant verification is you don't have to do KYC again, you know, essentially the same idea. But when you now really natively bake into the rails, that's where the magic starts happening because then you have, you know, the ability for, let's say, Square Cash and essentially Chipper Cash. If someone wants to send money from Chipper Cash to Square Cash, that becomes much easier in that world, right? Because you have, 
okay, Square can trust payments coming with Jupyter because underlying, uh, right, we've done the ID verification, but then we're also communicating that with them. And that's why I mentioned something like Kibidex as um, the protocol through which some of these things can happen. Um, but now if you go into Web2 world where you have like login and pay with Jupyter, that is also something, of course, you know, we have the payment trails, we do the on-off, um, on-ramp, off-ramp. So having ID verification makes it much, much, much easier to kind of support a product that would be like, okay, one-click payout, one-click checkout, right, essentially. Gotcha, gotcha. So at least from use cases, I think it seems very clear that other fintechs um, in Africa, right, would highly demand Chipper ID as a whole. Can you talk about, I guess, going forward? It seems like, you know, it's also really useful to just African legacy financial institutions, maybe telecoms, just anyone who needs to verify IDs. I'd love to just get a sense of, you know, what verticals you think Chipper ID, like as you've announced it, what verticals uh, will be like pretty well addressed and also just more on the TB Dex integration there. Like what kind of verticals do you see most disrupted by that new payment rail and identity identity solution? No, that's a great question. I think the one thing I'll bring up is like, you know, identity verification. The first thing I'll say is it's, of course, right now people think again, which I pointed earlier, think from a regulatory compliance perspective, but we see this as a problem that's going to impact much broader, right? So a good example of this is Persona, which is another ID verification um, kind of company. They recently announced a partnership with Walmart, a really big one, um, which is to do with their drivers, right? Verifying identity of the drivers. So I think even when we look at African continent, we have a lot of, right, like we have Bolt, we have, you know, even Uber operates there and they have a strict need for ID verification. You have social media, X.com. They've already, uh, you know, started uh, running a like these trials with ID verification, we expect that to be the norm. You know, for them, it's a big problem around bots, bots right? Uh, LinkedIn does it. Um, so there's a, a wide variety of these businesses where, let's say, if they want to come to Africa and they're like, okay, who do I integrate with? Right now, there's not a clear answer, right? And, and that's the reason some of these companies kind of stay away from the continent is because they cannot verify identities. Um, so when we see, you know, not only just FinTech, but it's also just going to impact in my head, at least, um, you know, you have your uh, logistics, uh, right? Anywhere, like even social media, but then also you go all the way to like food delivery, you know, people, wherever there's a need to verify human identity. And I think that space is just going to grow much, much bigger um, in the coming uh, decade. And and if you look at even like on the Web3 side, right? Like on their side, it's still like money movement mainly, but who knows, right? Like Web3 kind of, you know, where you have people kind of developing much, much, you know, stronger use cases that could be around content uh, creator uh, payouts. Or, you know, we had a, a recent thing where a telecom bank, um, essentially, no, it was a telecom or is it a bank? I forget. Um, it was, they wanted to understand, right? Like they do this kind of marketing things and they have to pay out users. So they're like, okay, we don't know, like, is this the same users or not? Like we want to do this ID verification on them. So how do we do that? And they were just like running this random marketing campaign, right? So think about it. If I'm running a marketing campaign, and I have to give payouts to users, you know, that also is a very, very abstract problem that is not really limited to any industry. So I think the bigger thesis here is that ID verification, coupled with the things around bot detection and such, are going to be much more, you know, and we already see this right with WorldCoin, right? I mean, they took the really hammer approach of like, okay, let's scan people's irises, which honestly could pretty much be the 
<laughs> way this problem gets solved in the really, really long term. But at the same time, it kind of illustrates the value and the need to ensure that we can verify humans, not at just, okay, from a fintech or regulatory, because this bank says it or this government says it, but just from a fundamental product level. And that, to me, is not restricted to fintech. That, to me, is pretty much everywhere. So a consensus verification method across Africa will, fingers crossed, de facto, just stimulate cross-vertical investment into the continent, right? Because there's just a lot more faith in the audience legitimacy, right? Exactly. And to that point, I would say also at a very affordable. I think for us, it's all about being affordable as well. So when we also go to market and stuff for us, yes, it's a revenue generator. But for us, it's a lot about getting that trust out there, developing those network effects, and essentially giving this at an affordable rate to growing fintechs. That's the first, like our goal is to ensure, uh, you know, people are not cutting corners here because of cost or people because it's it's a, it's one of those things where you can cut costs and the long term it'll hurt you. So we don't want people to think that way. Like, okay, I don't want to run selfie check because I have to pay this much money. We'll take the risk. We'll do manual review. Uh, but you're kind of caught up in this uh, tussle then, right? In the long run, what like you can't scale. So for us, it's the first thing is exactly what you said is opening up the corridor to you know make it almost like a non differentiator across the ecosystem. Like how well you can verify users, that should be a given, and then people can compete post onboarding, post uh, you know on what they do. So when we go to competitors, right? Like we have we're in talks with people, we're like, hey, you're super cash, we're a competitor, right? So how does this make sense, right? And then we have to get them this pitch. Like for us, it's less about that. We even chip ID, we're incorporated under a different entity, the data is separate. And, you know, of course, we have to make these guarantees because we really care about this, right? And how the data is secure. But at the same time, letting them know we're not just giving them at a at a good price because, oh, we're going to steal our customers or anything like that. So so we have to kind of develop that trust. And that's where, you know, sometimes the challenge becomes when something's too good, we built a product, we price it well, people are still, they're a bit like, okay, what's the catch? And, and for us, there is no catch. It's all about developing, like you said, I think you put it very beautifully, driving more cross-vertical investment in Africa, making sure the ecosystem thrives because if the ecosystem doesn't thrive, Chipper cannot also thrive, right? Gotcha. Before we wrap up, I just want to talk about how interesting it is and how unique of a position that Chipper is in as a leading digital wallet platform in Africa that you kind of had the opportunity to strategically see what has worked and what has not in other geographies, right? There's um, your core remittance product. Um, you can think of Wise, Remitly, et cetera. P2P, Cash App, uh, PayPal, Card, uh, Newbank, right? Uh, Checkout, API, Stripe, uh, Pay with Chipper, Login with Chipper, Apple, and Stocks and Crypto, like Robinhood or Coinbase. And now B2B identity solution like Alloy. Um, and given all these different directions that uh, Chipper is pursuing, I'd love to ask, what are the primary near-term catalysts that you're most excited about? I think for us, a lot of it is right. Like we have your cards product, which we've seen really, really right. Like, you know, we, there's no question of product market fit or any of this. It's like people are just, you know, you know, really knocking on our door. And we're really, we recently announced a partnership with Visa where we're going to kind of handling a lot of the card issuance uh, with them and, and, and that will make it a much better product for customers. And then, you know, on the B2B side, we're also much more excited. You know, we had the Zuna Tilt acquisition that we closed last um, at the end of 21. 
and now we're in 2022 and we were in here and now we are essentially building, you know, chip identities, B2B offering, but then even handling, uh, kind of really doubling down on our B2B offerings as well, um, right, with Zuna and Delt. And essentially what we really see is still, right, okay, remittances and cross-border bread and butter, we already know this, right? But when we look at like identification, it's a huge market, right? So for us, it's not like a thing or feature really going into it it's because we feel we have the bet, like I mentioned throughout the podcast today is it's going to be a big slice of the pie uh, and it's going to grow bigger in this next decade. And then on top of that, just handling B2B payments and stuff. So adding ID verification to our enterprise science right there, right? So we even maybe do a white label solution for them and, and stuff like that, right? So we have that kind of pillar emerging. And then stocks, crypto, and, you know, these consumer products are always good. Um, and we're always going to keep on investing and making them better. But the way I see it is like B2B enterprise, you have ID verification, you have our cards product, um, which is essentially the more capitalist on the consumer side, getting people in. Uh, but then, you know, stocks, crypto, which we've seen is like, you know, there needs to be a lot more awareness. I think people, it's, you know, once they kind of see more and more, okay, I can invest in stock and then a few years if I hold it or a year, I can get my, so the, the tail on getting people more excited about stocks or even crypto. Crypto is more like, you know, people get, you know, Bitcoin goes up and down, people trade. But I think on the continent, we still need to work on getting that awareness for these consumer products. But the enterprise and B2B, these people are knocking. So for a lot of us, it's like really doubling down on that side. And as a consumer product, we've done, I think, pretty well and have proved ourselves. And I think on the B2B side, now we're kind of showing our colors and, and expanding there because A, there's a lot of opportunity, but B, there are a lot of, businesses in Africa that really will benefit from this. So when we even look at, you know, your kind of mom and pop shop or even like your SMBs, right? Uh, maybe in the future, what we can even look at is like giving them credit and liquidity. If they start processing payments with us, we have all the transactions that allows us to even uh, develop some kind of either, you know, advanced liquidity or credit offering that we can start giving to them. So uh, that's where I would say at least the focus is for us right now. But at the same time, you know, chipper's grown, so we have all these products, but you know, we're not also like chewing more than we can bite. So it's 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 a good spot where we're at in terms of, you know, okay, existing things, but then new things that we're working on. That's so exciting. Well, thank you, Sami, for your time today. And we wish you and Chipper Cash the best. And we're so excited to see the traction that Chipper ID is gonna get. And um yeah, we are in awe at your product velocity um, and cannot wait to see what Chipper Cash has in store over the years ahead. Well, thank you again, Andrew. It was really uh, fun chatting. And uh, for yeah, for folks to keep up to date with us, uh, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, you can catch we, we really always are very quick to announce things as they come out. So if you want to keep up to date, uh, follow us on the socials. Yeah. Amazing. All right. Thank you. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.